Welcome to lecture four. Today we are going to get into the constitutional litigation. This lecture is going to be split up into three podcasts. The first one, this one, is going to look at three cases that give some important high-level concepts that are applicable specifically within division of powers litigation, but also may reveal some things about constitutional litigation more generally. We're going to look at the famous Persons case, a decision of the United Kingdom Privy Council that sets out the fundamental approach to Canadian constitutional interpretation through what is known as the living tree metaphor. We're going to also look at a much more recent case, the case of Como, which deals with uh, a question of free trade inter-provinces and gets at some important issues about federalism and the balance of powers, as well as reveals the degree to which some fundamental constitutional questions are still unresolved, or at least this one was unresolved until very recently. We'll then look at the question of standing. Who can bring a constitutional challenge? And to do that, we'll look at a charter case, the Downtown Eastside Sex Workers United Against Violence case. So those are the three cases we'll talk about in this first component, this first podcast. We will then, in the second podcast, talk about how courts decide if a law is valid, if a law is within the jurisdiction of the legislature that enacted it the federal or provincial legislature, as the case may be. In the final uh, component, the third podcast of today's lecture, we will talk about two doctrines that deal with problems other than a law being valid or invalid. These are the doctrines of paramountcy and interjurisdictional immunity. Paramountcy deals with what should be the result when there's valid federal law and valid provincial law that come into conflict. Interjurisdictional immunity deals with the problem when there's a generally worded piece of legislation that could be applied in a way that would limit the other legislature's powers. We'll get into those doctrines in some length in the third podcast, and they frankly do tend to be doctrines that take a bit of thinking through. They tend to be doctrines that students find to be difficult, but I hope that we'll get there where they seem manageable by the end of the course. So jumping into the person's case, this is a Privy Council decision that deals with the question of whether women are qualified to be senators. And Section 24 of the Constitution Act 1867 says that the governor general may summon qualified persons to the Senate. The question was, does that include women? Are women persons for the purposes of this provision of the Constitution? Now, even just asking that question is somewhat shocking in today's world. Uh, women are, are women persons? Uh, what a even asking the question sounds demeaning. But that was the common law position in 1867, that women were not legal persons 
1867, according to the common law, women were under a legal incapacity to hold public office. This was the Chief Justice of Canada said in the Supreme Court decision before this went up to the Privy Council, this was out of respect to women and a sense of decorum. So as I mentioned, this is a decision that we have of the Privy Council. This is the United Kingdom highest level court for the Commonwealth, which used to be above the Supreme Court of Canada within the Canadian judicial hierarchy. So at the Supreme Court of Canada, these five women, known as the famous five, there's statues of them in, in Ottawa, Nellie McClung, Henrietta Muir Edwards, Irene Parbley, Louise McKinney, and Emily Murphy. At the Supreme Court of Canada, they lost. They lost the question of whether women were persons for the purposes of the Constitution Act 1867. The basis upon which they lost was the Supreme Court of Canada looked at the meaning of those of that term of persons of qualified persons looked at the meaning of that term as it would have been understood in 1867 at the time the constitution was passed this is a constitutional approach known as originalism and in America, the question of whether you approach constitutional interpretation with an originalist view, that is, you interpret it as the people who wrote the Constitution would have understood it to be, to mean, that idea still has strong adherence. In Canada, however, that idea has very little sway, and that is because this decision of the Supreme Court of Canada in the person's case to take an originalist approach was appealed to the Privy Council and the Privy Council came up with a different answer. The Privy Council in a famous decision by Lord Sankey said, no, you do not have to be bound by the interpretation of that word that you would have found to have been prevalent within 1867. You don't have to look to how the original framers of the Constitution might have interpreted a phrase or a provision. Lord Sankey said instead, the British North America Act, that is the Constitution Act 1867, you'll see it referred to as the British North America Act. Lord Sankey said, the British North America Act planted in Canada a living tree capable of growth and expansion within its natural limits. And he goes on, he says, the duty of the courts is not to cut down the provisions of the act by a narrow and technical construction, but rather to give it a large and liberal interpretation so that the dominion within certain fixed limits may be mistress in her own house. So what was Lord Sankey getting at with that phrasing that the dominion would be mistress in her own house? Well, if you remember, of course, the British North America Act, the Constitution Act 1867, as it's now referred to, is an enactment of the UK legislature, the imperial parliament. And so 
in thinking about why the Privy Council rejected an originalist approach and instead said that the Constitution is a living tree capable of growth, can be interpreted in different ways, you have to think about the fact that in order to amend the Constitution until 1982, you would have had to go to the United Kingdom Parliament and get them, get the Imperial Parliament to pass an amendment to the British North America Act. So Lord Sankey is saying, no, we don't want to make Canada do that. We don't want to make Canada have to come ask us to change the Constitution when it becomes outdated. Instead, we're going to entrust the courts with, within reasonable limits, interpreting the Constitution in such a way that it can respond to modern realities. So in a strange way, this fact that the Constitution was an imperial constitution imposed by the imperial parliament upon Canada led to the empowerment of Canadian judges to be more flexible uh, and to have a, a greater role in shaping how the constitution is going to be interpreted. So this is the key takeaway from the person's case, that the constitution of Canada is not interpreted in an originalist way. Instead, the metaphor is this living tree, this idea that the Constitution can be interpreted in changing ways to deal with changing realities and changing norms within Canadian society. So in applying this living tree approach, Lord Sankey said, it doesn't matter that there is, in fact, masculine pronouns used in the Constitution Act 1867 when referring to senators. Provisions said, you know, he shall serve at, until the age of blah, blah, blah. Things like that. Doesn't matter because the Interpretation Act of 1899 said that words importing the masculine gender shall include females. So, the Interpretation Act of 1899 changed the position of the common law and, and changed the idea that you're going to have an interpretation that is going to look strictly at males as persons. But rather, even if a law says he shall do this, well, we're going to interpret that as saying he or she. We're going to get rid of a sexist implication from the use of a masculine pronoun in historical statutes. And indeed, many historical statutes use the masculine pronoun of he instead of uh, he or she or they. So applying this living tree approach, and indeed fortified by the fact that in other parts of the Constitution Act, it wouldn't make sense to interpret persons as having a gender. Lord Sankey determined that indeed, yes, women are qualified to be summoned and to serve as senators. So the famous five were successful. They established that for the purposes of Canadian constitutional law, persons includes women. Doesn't matter that that wasn't how the Constitution Act might have been interpreted when it was passed. We're not going to go back to that original interpretation and be bound by it. Instead, we're going to apply this living tree metaphor. There is a bit of a sad caveat in that while the famous five were successful, none of them were ever personally appointed senators. 
so descriptively it's true you're not going to see originalist arguments gain much traction at all in constitutional interpretation in canada you do see it increasingly in relation to statutory interpretation where there's a movement to try to give a primacy to the legislature's original intent in passing legislation at least as revealed within the text of the law so as to afford more predictability in statutory interpretation that's just an aside uh, but it's something to bear in mind when you hear people say that they advocate for a textualist interpretation of legislation they're advocating for something that is akin to originalism but within the uh, statutory interpretation framework instead of the constitutional interpretation framework just a point um, you know don't don't worry about that but that's just a point I wanted to mention but that does get at the important point in that when you use an originalist framework in theory you are getting more predictability you're getting predictability in the sense that there was one original meaning and you're going to know that that original meaning is going to be applied consistently whereas the living tree means that you may go to court and you may get an application of the constitution that is significantly different from what you could have predicted if you look just at the jurisprudence. The benefit, though, of the living tree approach is that you can achieve more fair results for more modern situations, at least in theory, because you're not bound to think how would the framers of the Constitution have dealt with this minority rights issue? What would their opinion of First Nations have been? And how would they have seen First Nations people relating to the structures of government set out in the Constitution Act? So there is a view that you can achieve greater outcomes for the modern society by taking this evolving living tree approach. This is a timeless debate around constitutional interpretation there are very good arguments on both sides um, you know you're not wrong to favor one or the other so it's helpful to think through what the benefits are of keeping a single interpretation consistent with the intent of the people who wrote the constitution versus taking a living tree approach which allows the words to evolve in their meaning in order to suit modern society it's also important to know that in canada it's the second approach that's triumphed and while the person's case is fascinating for its historical role in advancing equality for women in canada what is doctrinally important for this case is that living tree metaphor and the rejection of a strict originalist approach. So the next case I want to talk about is a much more recent case of Como. So this is a 2018 Supreme Court of Canada decision and it involves a provision of the Constitution that has been litigated in very limited ways which would seem to be hugely important and which was always 
sort of this um, this great lost constitutional provision. It was like a a mythical lost album from a great musician or something like that. There's this one provision of the Constitution that everyone seems to have overlooked and forgotten about, but my goodness, couldn't it have dramatic effects on how the Canadian Confederation is administered? What is this, this unicorn, this lost constitutional section? It's it's section 121 of the Constitution Act 1867, and it says, all articles of the growth produce or manufacture of any one of the provinces shall from and after the union be admitted free into each of the other provinces it's effectively reads like a free trade provision that's what it looks like why this is so important is many items in canada but really most notably alcohol are not admitted freely from one province to another Rather, there are strict regimes that govern how alcohol can be imported into the provinces. And as a result, there is dramatic differences in liquor pricing in different provinces of the country. I used to live in Ottawa, and I used to live a short walk to Quebec. Ottawa is right on a river that separates Ontario and Quebec. If I walked across the bridge to the Quebec liquor store, I could buy alcohol at far lower prices. Also, in Ontario, you have to get your alcohol from the LCBO, the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, or these beer stores that they have. In Quebec, you can buy alcohol anywhere. It's like like the States. You can buy alcohol at Costco and, you know, get a bunch of beer for very little money however for me to walk across the bridge a 15 minute walk to the quebec side liquor store to buy a bottle of wine and to walk it back to my house in ottawa was against the law can that square with section 121 that was always the question that people were wondering and for a consumer of alcohol, it would be nice to be able to acquire alcohol in cheaper jurisdictions if you live conveniently close to it and to bring it back. But for a producer, say for example, a BC winery, this is a question of fundamental importance because these rules significantly limit their ability to sell their wines throughout the country. So people have been waiting for this issue to be litigated. What does Section 121 mean? Can we really have a Section 121 while still prohibiting a BC winery from freely selling its alcohol in Alberta and Saskatchewan and Ontario if it doesn't go through these liquor boards? That was the question that finally was answered in Como. And that case involved a person who lived on the other side of Quebec and was equally tempted as I was to make the trip over to get some alcohol a bit cheaper, a bit more cheaply. And he was caught up in a sting operation where 
there were people at the liquor stores in Quebec looking for people with New Brunswick license plates who were buying alcohol. Mr. Como went and bought a, a large amount of alcohol. And when he drove over the bridge out of Quebec back into New Brunswick, there were police waiting for him. They searched his car and found that he had, in fact, imported this alcohol. Contrary to the rule that all alcohol sales in New Brunswick must go through the New Brunswick government, and you can't import your own alcohol into New Brunswick, even from Quebec, another province of Canada. So it's sort of funny the way this case got to the Supreme Court of Canada. This is a minor thing. This is a ticket. It's a couple hundred bucks or something like that. And the individual decided to challenge the constitutionality of his ticket in provincial court. And the judge said, yeah, that's unconstitutional. I agree with you. In doing so, the judge was brought to a Supreme Court of Canada case from the 20s called Gold Seal. And the Gold Seal case said that Section 121 of the Constitution only prohibits a direct tariff. The trial judge read Gold Seal and said, yeah, you know, what Mr. Como was charged with is not a direct tariff. This is rather a regulatory scheme wherein all alcohol sales have to go through the New Brunswick government and you can't import outside of that scheme. That's not a direct tariff. So on the law, as set out by the Supreme Court of Canada in Gold Seal, the trial judge should have said, you know, no, this is um, not a violation of Section 121. But he went further. He said, well, I don't think Gold Seal is good law anymore. He decided that Gold Seal had not been properly decided by the Supreme Court of Canada. He looked at historical evidence that was presented to his court on the intention of Parliament in passing 121 and decided that it was intended to be broader than just a prohibition on tariffs. It was instead effectively a free trade provision. And so he found Section 121 was violated by this liquor scheme, and he dismissed the ticket as against Mr. Como. The Crown appeals and doesn't even get leave from the Court of Appeal to have the case heard. So you would think that might be the end of it, but they actually sought leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada and got that leave to appeal. So this case went right from the trial level to the Supreme Court of Canada in terms of who made a, a substantive decision on the merits of the case. And the Supreme Court of Canada allowed the appeal and found the trial judge had erred. And in so doing, it comments on a number of the ideas that we've talked about in this class. And first, it talked about stare decisis, the idea that you must follow decisions from higher courts. And at paragraph 26, the court wrote, Common law courts are bound by authoritative precedent. This principle, stare decisis, is fundamental for guaranteeing certainty in the law. Subject to extraordinary exceptions, a lower court must apply the decisions of higher courts to the facts before it. There is, however, an exception to the rules of stare decisis that the Supreme Court of Canada had set out in a case called Bedford just a few years before Como was decided. And that is 
in Bedford, the court said that a legal precedent may be revisited if new legal issues are raised as a consequence of significant developments in the law, or if there is a change in the circumstances or evidence that fundamentally shifts the parameters of the debate. And we are going to come back and talk more about Bedford when we talk about the Charter later. So in light of that, you might think the Supreme Court of Canada would excuse the trial judge in Como from not just simply following the 100-year-old almost gold seal case, but instead looking into the interpretation of Section 121 anew. However, the court took the Como case as an opportunity to limit the Bedford exception to stare decisis. The court said at paragraph 31, the exception is narrow and you must have new evidence that fundamentally shifts the parameters of the debate. They said Bedford is not a general invitation to reconsider binding authority. And the court then said that the Bedford idea of shifting legislative and social facts and that allowing reconsideration of Supreme Court of Canada cases in appropriate circumstances is tied to the living tree metaphor. So you see the idea of this living tree metaphor having salience in very recent constitutional interpretation. At paragraph 33, the court says, the focus on shifting legislative and social facts is conceptually linked to Lord Sankey's famous living tree metaphor, which acknowledges that interpretations of the Constitution Act 1867 evolve over time, given shifts in the relevant legislative and social context. But despite the Bedford case and despite the recognition that a living tree requires that courts be able to reconsider constitutional interpretations that have lived past their time, the court said that the high threshold to allow a trial judge to depart from a Supreme Court of Canada decision was not met in this case. So what you want to take away from this, which may be a little bit confusing with respect to the living tree idea, is that there's a tension between a living tree and stare decisis. And so it's one thing for a court to feel that in the absence of binding precedent against an interpretation applying in a particular circumstance, it can use this living tree metaphor to consider a new how a law might apply. In the person's case, we were dealing with the Privy Council. The Privy Council is no longer the highest court of appeal. Now it's the Supreme Court of Canada. But when you're at that level, that's where the living tree metaphor is going to be most salient because there, prior jurisprudence is not binding. There is not stare decisis. Prior decisions of the Supreme Court of Canada can be departed from, as we talked about last class. So the living tree at the highest level, at the Supreme Court of Canada level, is the metaphor to consider. However, when you're at a lower court level, the presumption is going to be living tree or not, you're bound by stare decisis. It is only in exceptional circumstances that a lower court is entitled to depart from a binding precedent of a higher court. And simply pointing to a living tree, metaphor is not enough to allow you to do so in all circumstances. We're going to come back to this point in the next case because there's a, a wrinkle to what I just said that I'll explore with the downtown Eastside sex workers case.
But you see then stare decisis and the living tree both coming to play in this very recent Como case. The court also, interestingly, took issue with the use of a historian to lead evidence on Canadian law. Why, why is that? Well, there's a general rule against leading evidence, leading expert evidence on Canadian law because, of course, who is the expert on Canadian law? Well, it's the judges. So you are entitled to lead expert evidence in court when there is expertise needed to understand the facts before the court that is outside of the expertise of the decision maker. So for example, if I'm going to lead a bunch of scientific data on mercury concentrations in fish, I could lead an expert to explain how that scientific data would translate into human health consequences from eating mercury and fish. That's proper expert evidence. It is not proper expert evidence to explain Canadian law to a Canadian court. If you have to prove foreign law, which happens, sometimes the case may be decided under the law of another jurisdiction or that law may come into play in some manner, then you can lead expert evidence on foreign law, but you don't lead expert evidence on Canadian law. So the Supreme Court of Canada took issue with the reception of this historical evidence relied on by the trial judge to help interpret section 121. So the court then goes on to talk about, well, what's the proper approach to interpret this section of the constitution, section 121? And wouldn't you know it, you see the modern approach to statutory interpretation that we discussed last week. And you have the modern approach being applied within a constitutional framework, which has certain specific requirements, including incorporating the living tree doctrine. We see that at paragraph 52. The court also notes that other constitutional concepts must be taken into account when interpreting a constitutional provision, including the principle of federalism, which will be important for this case. So paragraph 52 is an interesting paragraph because it offers a approach to interpreting specific provisions of the Constitution. So what you see in Como is an interesting dynamic as between stare decisis and the living tree idea. The Supreme Court says, it was wrong to depart from our gold seal case at the trial level. However, when they're looking at section 121, they don't merely say, well, gold seal says it is this, so it's this. They go to first principles, the principles of constitutional and statutory interpretation, and they determine what section 121 will mean within the modern Canadian society. And they decide first at a minimum that section 121 prohibits tariffs. That is, of course, consistent with what was decided in Gold Seal. But then they go on to consider, should it go farther than that? And in deciding that it is not going to go as far as Mr. Como asks, and they're not going to strike down this rule that prohibits importation of alcohol from Quebec to New Brunswick, they turn importantly, to the federalism principle. So paragraph 78 is another key passage, and the court explains, 
Federalism refers to how states come together to achieve shared outcomes while simultaneously pursuing their unique interests. The principle of federalism recognizes the autonomy of provincial governments to develop their societies within their respective spheres of jurisdiction. And this is the key part. The tension between the center, the federal government, and the regions, the provincial government, is regulated by the concept of jurisdictional balance. The federalism principle requires a court interpreting constitutional texts to consider how different interpretations impact the balance between federal and provincial interests. This is the idea that when you're interpreting the Constitution, when you're taking a look at Section 121, you don't just look at the plain meaning of the text or even the statutory scheme as a whole, the constitutional scheme as a whole. You have to bear in mind what will be the effect on the distribution of powers as between the federal and provincial governments if you were to adopt a particular interpretation. And in this case, if you were to say that provinces can't pass laws that have the effect of limiting the importation of goods into the province, this would significantly limit provincial jurisdiction. And in this case, when we're talking about alcohol and the importation of alcohol into a province, you run into very legitimate provincial interests that have nothing to do with restraining trade as the goal. For example, it is well established that pricing alcohol higher can lower consumption and thereby diminish the adverse health effects of alcohol use. And in a country like Canada that has universal health care, there's a compelling state interest in the health of the population. I would say there always is, but it's especially directly obvious when the state is also paying for the health consequences of the use of dangerous substances like alcohol. There's also concerns around crime and alcohol use. So if we were to say that a state is going to be frustrated, a province is going to be frustrated in using a cost mechanism to limit alcohol use because there will be a lowest common denominator effect where whichever province has the lowest alcohol prices will be exporting that alcohol to the other provinces. Well, that's going to diminish the province's ability to pursue valid provincial aims like health and limiting crime. So if you interpret Section 121 as imposing a strong limit against any law that has the effect of limiting the ability of one province to sell its wares in another province, if you're going to take that approach to Section 121, you are going to diminish the powers of all of the provinces to pursue their own valid provincial aims. And the Supreme Court of Canada says we're not going to do that. And the key passage, paragraph 106, sets this out clearly. This is the ratio of the case. 
The court says, We conclude that a purposive approach to Section 121 leads to the following conclusion. Section 121 prohibits laws that in essence and purpose, essence and purpose, restrict trade across provincial boundaries. Laws that only have the incidental effect of restricting trade across provincial boundaries because they are part of broader schemes not aimed at impeding trade do not offend Section 121 because the purpose of such laws is to support the relevant scheme, not to restrict interprovincial trade. So this is the ratio of the case. This paragraph 106 sets out a clear rule from the case that the Supreme Court is looking to be followed in subsequent cases. And what you can take away about that ratio is that it's going to look at the purpose for which the legislature passed a law. They're not going to look simply at what the law does, but they're going to look at what it was aimed to do. If a legislature passes a law that is merely aimed at restraining trade across a provincial boundary and not aimed at some other valid purpose, that will violate Section 121. If, on the other hand, a law is aimed at some other purpose but has the effect of violating, or sorry, of restraining trade, that will not violate Section 121 of the Constitution Act 1867. So what you see here is the way in which the purpose that a legislature does something may be determinative of its constitutional validity. We'll come back to this later when we talk about colorability, when we talk about the Charter, but I want to just flag it now. The constitutionality of a legislative provision, therefore, doesn't necessarily only turn on what the legislation does. It may also turn on what the legislation is intended to do. And we saw this, interestingly enough, a few years back now, where there was a dispute between Alberta and British Columbia about a pipeline. The Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion is a very controversial project. I actually teach an entire seminar about it in the fall. But in essence, the dispute that matters for this point was between British Columbia and Alberta, who both had NDP provincial governments. But the NDP is it's a uh, sort of funny coalition. It's a usually thought of as the most left of the national Canadian parties, but it's made up of both environmentalists and unionists. So people who support unions, working class jobs, and people who support environmental protections often both find themselves within the NDP. But sometimes those things come into conflict as happened in this dispute as between Alberta and British Columbia. Alberta's economy depends in large part upon oil and gas development. British Columbia, on the other hand, has this beautiful coastline and having all the tanker ships and the pipelines going through the province is, is a negative for the province for its own goals in, in many ways. And so the BC government was adamantly opposed to the pipeline. 
The Alberta government is adamantly for the pipeline and the development of the oil and gas that the pipeline will support. And BC tried an interesting tactic of saying, well, this pipeline, I can't stop. It's a federal regulated undertaking. We'll get to that soon. But just take it as a given that BC can't stop an interprovincial pipeline from going through its province. But it said, I will put a tax on the oil that comes out of the pipeline to make it uh, cover the potential environmental hazards that could happen if uh, there's an accident with the pipeline. And this was seen as an attempt by BC to kill this pipeline. So Alberta retaliated by saying that BC wineries can't sell wine in Alberta anymore. Now that I think would be seen as a direct attack on trade. The idea there was simply to restrain trade as between the provinces. I don't think Alberta's law would have been constitutional had it been challenged under Section 121. BC and Alberta settled their dispute and it ended up uh, not going to litigation. So with that aside, coming back to Como, in the end, the Supreme Court of Canada said this New Brunswick scheme that creates a monopoly on liquor distribution and which prohibits liquor importation outside of that monopoly is constitutional. Its primary goal is aimed at health and safety in the province. It is not primarily aimed at restraining trade. It does not therefore violate Section 121. So that is Como, a fascinating case that gets at the living tree idea, that gets at stare decisis, that gets at how laws and the Constitution in particular will be interpreted so as to preserve the federalism balance, the federalism principle, and shows how an important provision of the Constitution somehow still is being interpreted for maybe not the first time, but the first time in a hundred years very recently. It shows how the Canadian Constitution still has a lot of questions to work out. As a fun bit of trivia, I personally have engaged in the activity of importing alcohol out of Quebec into another province, contrary to these types of laws, with one of the counsel on this case. I won't say who, I won't say what side they're on, but uh, I know one person who had a bit of a personal stake in the, in the case. Okay, so I'm going to move on now to the last of these uh, big ideas at the outset of this constitutional review, standing. Standing is the question of who can go challenge a law for being unconstitutional. And standing is important when you think about stare decisis and constitutional laws. If there is a challenge to the constitutionality of a law and it fails, that is a binding decision. It can be departed from by the same court in exceptional circumstances, but it ought not to be. If it goes up to an appeal and the appeal is dismissed, that will be binding on the lower court. If it goes all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, that will be binding on the whole country. When there is going to be this stare decisis, this precedential value for decisions, it's important that when a case is argued, 
it is argued well. You don't want decisions being made on the basis of a poorly argued position with an insufficient evidentiary basis. Because of that, the court has ruled that you simply cannot bring a challenge to the constitutionality of any legislation at all. Rather, you have to show one of two things in order to challenge the constitutionality of legislation. And indeed, this is either or. You have to show either private interest standing or public interest standing. Private interest standing is established by showing that you are directly affected by the law at issue. If you're charged with a criminal offense, you have private interest standing to challenge the constitutionality of that law. And the court's not going to say, well, you're not going to do a good enough job at it, so I'm going to apply the law to you despite your constitutional concerns. However, if you are not directly affected by a law, then you can only challenge that law if you can show what is called public interest standing. And the case we have on public interest standing is the Downtown Eastside Sex Workers United Against Violence Society case, which was a challenge to the prostitution laws as a violation of charter rights held by sex workers. So Downtown Eastside Sex Workers United Against Violence was a society devoted, or is a society devoted to improving working conditions for female sex workers. The society and an individual, Ms. Kisselback, a former sex worker, launched a constitutional challenge to several provisions related to prostitution in the criminal code. At the same time, three current and former sex workers brought a similar lawsuit in Ontario. One of them, Miss Bedford. So that's the Bedford case we talked about in the Como discussion and which we'll come back to later when we're talking about the charter. The downtown Eastside sex workers case faced a standing challenge brought by the government who said, you do not have standing to challenge these laws. They said, the society is a society, it's interested in this, but it's not directly affected by the laws. The society hasn't been charged with any crime. And Miss Kisselbach, though you were a former sex worker, you are no longer a sex worker, and so therefore you are not directly affected by this law in a sufficient manner to get standing. You're not affected in a manner that's fundamentally different from how everybody else in society is affected. So they said, uh, the challenge was, well, there's no private interest standing. That was the government's position. Nobody directly affected between the society and Miss Kisselbach. And they said, further, you don't have public interest standing because it was well established at the time that a key factor for establishing public interest standing was that there was no other way to bring the matter before the courts. And the government said, look, there is this challenge in Ontario that is being brought right now by current sex workers, and that is another reasonable way to get this challenge heard. We are not going to have a problem where legislation is immune from constitutional review. 
So this was a major chance to rethink standing. And at the trial level, there is a finding that there was no standing. The case was struck out. It went to appeal, and in a split decision at the BC Court of Appeal, the court said, yes, indeed, there is standing. And in so doing, they fundamentally departed from the Supreme Court of Canada's prior jurisprudence on standing. They said, I don't think it really is necessary that you be the only possible way, so long as you're a reasonable way to have this matter heard, that you're not going to be underfunded, it's not going to be poorly argued. And to be clear, the Downtown Eastside Sex Workers United Against Violence Society had the best person possible to bring this challenge. They had a lawyer named Mr. Joe Arve. He is an absolute legend. As we go through the major constitutional cases in this course, it'll be more difficult for you to find a case where he's not counsel than a case where he is counsel. Currently, he's arguing his last case, or he's working on what he says will be his last case, and it is a challenge to government inaction on climate change brought on behalf of young people in Canada. So you think about the essence of this problem that was before the court then, before the BC Court of Appeal first, and they say, well, my goodness, a group of street-level sex workers formed a society, got funding together, got the best lawyer in Canada to argue their case, and we're really going to tell them, no, you can't do it. We won't hear from you. The majority said, this can't be right. This can't be the right outcome. This is the majority of the BC Court of Appeal. I'm setting the stage for the Supreme Court of Canada case that you have in the readings. The majority said that ca that cannot be the right outcome. And the dissent by Justice Groberman said in the BC Court of Appeal said, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, but there's binding Supreme Court of Canada cases that set out this standing test and you just don't meet it. There is another piece of litigation that is raising these same issues and is brought by people with private interest standing. How could that possibly meet a test that requires that you be the only reasonable way to have the matters heard, to give public interest standing? Goes to the Supreme Court of Canada, and the Supreme Court of Canada, in a well-written decision, I think, by Justice Cromwell, decides that, indeed, standing should be granted to the Downtown Eastside Sex Workers United Against Violence Society, and does so in a way that reformulates what had previously been the standing test. So I'm not going to get into depth in the previous test, so it really is important as you know the current test, but the court says, well, what is the purpose of granting standing to challenge the constitutionality of legislation? They say there's three purposes. One is properly allocating scarce judicial resources. Okay? We don't have endless judges. We can't hear endless cases. They say we have to screen out mere busybodies. That is, people who just you know, enjoy bringing challenges to legislation because it gives them something to do. That's not a, a huge problem. There's not a lot of people who are going around launching you know, constitutional challenges here and there willy-nilly. But it does happen, and I've had to make an argument that somebody was a mere busybody, uh, a lawyer, and argue that they didn't have standing. And it was an awkward argument to make to call another lawyer a mere busybody. 
The second purpose of standing is to ensure that courts have the benefit of contending points of view of those most directly affected. This is the idea that when you have private interest standing, you have people with real skin in the game. They're directly affected. They're going to present the perspective of those directly affected by the law. And finally, the court says that there is a separation of powers concern that is furthered by limiting standing, by limiting the ability of just anybody to challenge the constitutionality of the law. And that is respecting the scope of the judicial role, which is not to be a freestanding tribunal on the wisdom of laws, but rather is to adjudicate actual disputes between actual people. But, the court says, we must also think about the principle of legality. And that's the idea that no law should be immunized from constitutional review. We've talked about the courts as being the guardians of the Constitution, and they have to be able to ensure that the legislature is not applying laws, or is not enacting laws that violate the Constitution. So the court says, how do we balance these interests, ensure that we're getting the right types of challenges and we're respecting our limited role while also not immunizing laws from constitutional review. They say there's three factors to be considered. One, is there a serious justiciable issue raised? And the idea there is that if there's not a serious issue raised, we're not going to grant some entity standing to bring the case so that we can just throw it out for not being justiciable, something that we ought not to decide. Second, does the plaintiff have a real stake or a genuine interest in it? Is this somebody who's just on a whim decided they don't like a law? Or is this somebody who, like Miss Kisselback and the downtown Eastside Sex Workers United Against Violence Society, have a real interest in this law? And finally, they say you have to consider whether, in all the circumstances, the proposed suit is a reasonable and effective way to bring the issue before the courts. It is not the only reasonable and effective way. And that's the change of the downtown Eastside sex workers case as against the earlier public interest standing cases. So in this case, the court said standing should be granted. There is a serious justiciable issue that affects a large number of people. These prostitution laws are criminal code, and if they're unconstitutional, that's a, that's a serious issue. It's justiciable because the charter, and it's whether government action is violating the charter, is justiciable. That's the Operation Dismantle case. And they say the downtown Eastside sex workers, United Against Violence, has a genuine interest. It's fully engaged with these issues. It has experience with the sex workers of the downtown east side of Vancouver and is familiar with their interests. And it's a registered nonprofit organization that is run by and for current and former sex workers. Similarly, Ms. Kisselback is deeply engaged. These laws directly affected her for 30 years, and she's now a violence prevention coordinator for sex workers. And finally, on their reasonable and effective means, they say, well, the Bedford case and the fact there's another challenge out there is not a sufficient basis for denying standing. This is the change from what would have been the result on the old articulation of standing. They say, for one, the decisions of this Ontario case won't be binding in British Columbia. Further, the challenges are not 
identical. There are some things that are being challenged by the downtown Eastside sex workers case that are not at issue in Bedford. The claimants in Bedford also are not street level sex workers, which is a different interest, a different perspective being brought by the downtown Eastside sex workers case. And furthermore, this case, the downtown Eastside sex workers case, could be stayed pending the outcome of Bedford. I mean, just because we give you standing doesn't mean it's going to make sense to not wait and hear what happens in Bedford and see if that changes the desirability of proceeding with that case. And what about the fact that, well, there's people charged with these offenses quite regularly. Is that not reason to say that there's just no need for public interest standing, even in British Columbia? And they say, no, most of these criminal code prosecutions deal with just one of the prostitution laws. So it doesn't provide this opportunity to look at the scheme more broadly. And further, sex workers in the downtown east side are unwilling to come forward as the plaintiff to challenge those laws when they're directly affected by being charged by them for fears of privacy, safety, and increased violence from clients. And indeed, you think about it, if you're going to legalize or change the criminality of sex work, one of the groups that likely is going to be opposed to that change are the criminal elements who are benefiting from the current arrangement. So you think about the you know, the pimps who are taking advantage of women and taking advantage of the criminalization which prohibits women from engaging in sex work in a safer way. Well, those people are not going to like a challenge being brought to effectively their business model. If these criminal code provisions go away, it becomes legal, it becomes easier for women to engage in sex work, they don't need necessarily these people who are living off of their work. It could very well be unsafe to bring this challenge if you had to put your name on it, if you were currently engaged in, in downtown Eastside sex work. So the important thing to take away from this case is the idea of a new approach to standing, that the court looked at the previous standing rules and said these aren't quite broad enough. We don't need you to be the only possible way to bring a matter forward, but we have to decide that you are a reasonable and effective way to bring a case forward. And so the big picture takeaway you want to have is there are these two kinds of standing. One is private interest standing, and you get that if you can show you're directly affected by a law. And for a criminal law, that usually means you've been charged with that law. If you can't show that, then you have to get into this public interest standing and get through this three-part test. Is there a serious justiciable issue? Do you have a genuine stake in a genuine interest in the issue? And do you present a reasonable and effective way to bring the matter forward? The next podcast will go on to discuss the framework for assessing the constitutional validity of laws on the basis of the division of powers.